The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. In July 2020, in the midst of the raging COVID-19 pandemic, the CEOs of the four major technology companies were dragged before Congress. They appeared virtually. The purpose of today's hearing is to examine the dominance of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. That's Rhode Island Representative David Cicilline, the chairman of the House Antitrust Subcommittee. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you are out to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God? Yes. Yes. In particular, he and the other lawmakers had hard questions for Jeff Bezos. They were skeptical, to put it mildly. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle united against him. Why isn't Amazon more aggressive in ensuring that counterfeit goods are not sold on its platform. Uh, thank you. This is an incredibly important issue and one that we work very hard on. Counterfeits are a scourge. I would uh, encourage this body to uh, pass stricter penalties for counterfeiters and to increase because they are bad actors. Your company does make money off of counterfeit goods being sold on your platform. Isn't that correct? Mr. Bezos, aren't seller fees now effectively subsidizing Amazon's retail division? Uh, Congresswoman, no, I don't believe so. I think what you're seeing there, when you see these fees going up... It, Mr. Bezos, are, are stolen goods sold on Amazon? Uh, Congresswoman, not... To my knowledge, although once I, you again, know, do you require a real name and address from sellers? I believe we do, but le- let me get back to your office with a. I'd rather give you the accurate answer, but I think we do. It's rare to hear Jeff Bezos caught on his back foot like this. There's some real uncertainty in his voice, because government oversight could only mean bad things for his company. It could mean fines or even antitrust lawsuits that seek to break up the company. The lawmakers focused on Amazon's retail empire, which had expanded to an almost unimaginable size. This massive growth depended in large part on Amazon's third-party marketplace. That's where independent merchants from around the world sell their wares on the Amazon.com website. The lawmakers had no problem roughing up Bezos. He sounded defensive when asked whether those third-party sellers weren't also victims of Amazon. Georgia Congresswoman Lucy McBath had one powerful example. I'm going to share the story of a small business owner who is also a wife and a mother. So, Mr. Bezos, after Amazon delisted this small business without any apparent reason or notice, she told us that they sent more than 500 separate communications to Amazon, including to you, Mr. Bezos, over the past year. There was not a single meaningful response Do you think this is an acceptable way to treat someone that you described as both a partner and a customer? Uh, No, Congresswoman, and I appreciate uh, you showing me that anecdote, and I would like to talk to her. Uh, It does not at all to me seem like the right way to uh, treat her. Bezos hadn't heard of her, likely because there are thousands of sellers with similar stories. 
And it's also likely that this merchant wasn't delisted by any one Amazon employee, but that she got swept up in Amazon's automated system. Many politicians and regulators think Amazon is too big and wields too much power over these mom-and-pop sellers. As part of this investigation, we've interviewed many small businesses, and they use the words like bullying, fear, and panic to describe their relationship with Amazon. Bullying, fear, and panic. Hardly the words Bezos had in mind when he conceived the marketplace 20 years ago. Sellers can wake up one morning and find their business in crisis. They're vulnerable to negative reviews posted by competitors that tank their ratings. A merchant hawking the exact same product can accuse them of peddling unsafe or counterfeit items. And when Amazon's algorithms detect even a suggestion of questionable conduct, they can automatically close a seller's account and put them out of business altogether with no explanation, leaving a small business owner scrambling to figure out why. You're listening to Foundering. I'm your host, Brad Stone. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of the Amazon marketplace, the always surprising, often chaotic, and hugely successful side of Jeff Bezos's retail empire. This is the business that helped make Amazon profitable in the dog days after the dot-com bust and helped the company to fund projects like Alexa and Prime Video. It's a story that starts with yet another non-intuitive decision by Bezos to let indie merchants sell stuff on the website right alongside Amazon's own products. That decision would have life-changing ramifications for millions of sellers around the world. We'll tell you that story after the break. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So in that somewhat disastrous testimony in front of Congress, Jeff Bezos actually told the story of the birth of the marketplace. 20 years ago, we made the decision to invite other sellers to sell in our store. We believe that combining the strengths of Amazon's store with the vast selection of products offered by third parties would be a better experience for customers. Fortunately, we were right. There are now 1.7 million small and medium-sized businesses selling on Amazon. So if you shop on Amazon.com, you can buy some listed items directly from Amazon. This is merchandise that Amazon bought from a wholesaler and sells to the customer, it's acting like a regular retailer, like Walmart or Target. But in most cases, Amazon customers are buying things on the site from other people or companies. That's the Amazon marketplace. These days, the Amazon marketplace is a massive, unruly world unto itself. It has over a billion products, two million sellers. 
and one of the primary people responsible for the size and scope of the marketplace was a guy named Peter Pharisee. Peter ran the music and movie business during his early years at the company, until an unusual opportunity put him on Jeff Bezos' radar. In 2008, Peter was asked to host Amazon's annual all-hands meeting, and he found a special guest. Getting asked to host the all-hands meeting was like a treasured gift. And coming into it, I was looking for, well, gosh, what's the unique thing that we could do to really make this all-hands meeting special? We had this idea of let's just try to get a, you know, a big celebrity and a big name. So to skip ahead, we got really lucky and we got Tom Cruise. Yes, the Tom Cruise, Maverick, Ethan Hunt, the couch-jumping, Scientology-proselytizing action star. Peter remembers that all-hands meeting as kind of magical. And perhaps his greatest accomplishment was not booking Tom Cruise, but impressing his boss, Jeff Bezos, who was clearly enthralled by Cruise. So it was an incredible all-hands meeting. The energy in the audience was incredible. Uh, Tom and Jeff talked backstage about space rockets and planes, and they had, it turned out they actually had quite a few things in common when it comes to space and space travel. So that was, that was fun to see. And after the all-hands meeting ended, uh, it ends with Jeff, you know, doing a Q&A, so it's he and I on stage together, and he came over, and I, I, if I remember correctly, he either shook my hand or gave me a hug. I may have hugged him. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, that was great. And he invited me back to lunch afterwards with he and the S team. Uh, that's the senior team that was leading the entire company. So I thought to myself, wow, uh, this, is, this is great. So Peter is invited to a lunch with the most important people at Amazon. And that lunch would turn out to be pivotal because Bezos clearly took notice of Peter. And I was shocked to get a call from him a couple weeks later saying, um, we have a new role we want you to take. And we have three businesses that are really struggling. Uh, one of them is called the Marketplace, and that's what we want you to go lead. <laughs> so I was on the other end of the phone, um, you know, not knowing what to say exactly. I was, it was such a different twist that I sort of imagined. He was really surprised he was asked to change jobs to lead this small, sad team of about 35 engineers. Their goal, to bring third-party sellers onto the site to compete against their own colleagues. As I came to find out, it was a very small, underfunded uh, team going through a really tough time, you know? And this was one of the teams within Amazon that people would say, wow, you know, I don't think you want to go over there because those guys are struggling to get stuff done, and the morale looks pretty poor, people were jumping ship. So I sort of said to myself, wow, I wonder if the cruise thing went very poorly, actually, because <laughs> why would Jeff ask me to run this, this struggling business? At the time, the Amazon marketplace was an unsuccessful backwater at the company. It was mostly a place where people sold used books, CDs, and DVDs. It represented maybe a quarter of all sales on the site. But Bezos thought it could be bigger. If sellers could offer a lower price or get a product to customers faster, they should win the sale over Amazon. The idea struck a lot of employees as nutty. It's one of those things you sort of raise your eyebrows on when you join the company, like, tell me this again, so I'm running our retail business, but you would also like me to enable thousands of people across the world to compete against us <laughs> on our same platform on an even basis to serve our customers. 
So, you know, honestly, it was sort of, no one had ever done this before. You know, you don't go into a retail store and see your competitor's products <laughs> on the shelf next to yours. Uh, that didn't happen. Peter thought it was counterintuitive. In fact, most Amazon employees thought it was counterintuitive. Why invite in the competitors? Well, Bezos realized that more sellers on the marketplace meant a greater selection of products, that more products meant more customers, and those buyers would in turn attract more sellers. All of this would make Amazon a richer, more prosperous company. Bezos posed a fundamental challenge for Peter. He asked this new marketplace team, how would you get a million sellers? It is a classic way of thinking at Amazon. You know, if you frame the question, how would we grow our seller base by 10% next year, you'll probably get back an answer that delivers 10%, which would be small. <laughs> when you start the question by saying, how would I get a million more sellers into the marketplace? You know, that can't be answered quickly. And obviously it's, it's gonna take an enormous amount of innovation here. So Peter realized that you couldn't recruit a million sellers one by one with salespeople making phone calls. He needed sellers to sign up on their own and go into business with Amazon.com. They called it a self-service system. One of the big lessons I learned from Jeff actually was the importance of using technology to build self-service in order to scale. Over the 10 years I ran the business, more than 80% of all the businesses who sold their products on Amazon came in through self-service. They never talked to a human being. I know to some people this might sound kind of techno-dystopian, but Peter's big win, the reason why the Amazon marketplace became so dominant, was because it depended on technology rather than people to grow. But this self-service grow-at-all-cost mentality is also why the marketplace would later generate so many problems for Amazon, unfairly punishing many sellers and drawing the attention of Congress. We'll tell that story next. So the early 2010s were a great time for the Amazon marketplace. Their primary rival at the time, eBay, was in decline. Now eBay sellers were jumping on Amazon. Through Bezos's self-service system, they could sign up, list their wares, and start selling. But this is the internet, where things change fast. Pretty soon, Peter Ferrisi and his colleagues noticed they had real competition. Sellers in China were signing up for a site called Wish.com, operated by a San Francisco company. It allowed sellers anywhere in the world to sell products online to buyers anywhere else in the world. AliExpress, an arm of the Chinese internet giant Alibaba, was doing the same thing. For Peter Ferrisi, it struck close to home. When our oldest was a freshman in college, I all of a sudden, I see a charge for AliExpress on my credit card. And I, and I say to myself, well, I know that wasn't me, so I wonder what happened here. And it turned out that uh, my son bought a basketball jersey on there, and so did all of his college roommates. And he didn't even understand that AliExpress might be a competitor to Amazon. All he knew is all of his roommates were constantly buying new sports clothing on AliExpress. That's a wake-up call. It was a signal to Peter that the Amazon marketplace could be in trouble. Sellers in China 
where the cost to make goods is much lower, were suddenly competing head-to-head with sellers in the West, where costs were higher. It was classic Internet-style disruption. When we saw Wish and AliExpress, it really broke one of the principles we had in mind, which is, well, wait, people won't want things that are delivered that slowly. And it turned out, actually, some people will. Some people are willing to make the trade-off between much more higher value, you know, much lower cost and slower shipping time. And so uh, that was a signal for us. So what did Amazon do? Of course, they also went to China. They decided to follow Wish.com and AliExpress and allow Chinese sellers to reach buyers around the world. Peter wanted to see things for himself. I took my leadership team over to China And at the very beginning of this in Beijing, we hosted in kind of a big conference center like a product fair. So Peter and his team held this big fair where they invited all sorts of merchants based in China to show off their products. And it was incredible. (laughs) You know, these uh, robot vacuums that we see all over our homes? I mean, we saw two or three people who built that. Uh, I think there was a Chinese company that acquired Segway. So we saw multiple versions of the Segway, you know, motorized vehicles. And the, the innovation was just absolutely incredible. And you say to yourself, wow, I mean, if we were selling these products right now across the world, people would love it, you know, because not only were they high quality, but they were also great value. On the trip, Peter noticed something else. Brand names were under attack. But the most incredible thing to see live was the same factories that are making the most expensive apparel in the world, also on the same factory line, are capable of making something equally as beautiful, equally as high quality, and selling it for a tenth of the price, a twentieth of the price. (laughs) This could have enormous implications for the fashion industry. Peter and his team visited a factory that made sport coats for Abercrombie and Fitch. Abercrombie sold the jackets for $500, but it only cost the factory $9 to make the jacket. And then they took the same coat, added a slightly different button pattern to it, and sold it directly online for $90 and still made a fat profit. So pick whoever your favorite designer is. The same factory that's making those clothes They're also capable of making those same clothes um, much less expensively. And so what we began to see was these entrepreneurs who own these factories, and some of them were U.S.-based, some of them were China-based, they all were coming to the same conclusion we were, which is this is going to significantly disrupt the world of brands and brand premium. And from a customer perspective, it's like, this is going to change the world. It certainly changed the fate of Amazon. In 2016, Peter Farisi and his team threw open the doors of the marketplace to international sellers. Overnight, the marketplace tripled in size. The next year, the marketplace was responsible for more than half of all goods sold on Amazon. Sales in North America took off. The annual growth rate jumped from 25% to 33%. Amazon was defying the laws of corporate gravity. It's basically unheard of for a 20-year-old business to start growing even faster. As a result, its stock price zoomed, and Bezos was vaulted into the ranks of the wealthiest people in the world. Peter Farisi remembers presenting a written report on his team's progress. He got the best feedback an Amazon executive can dream of, 
And so Jeff picked up the document and he held it close to his chest. And what I remember him saying is, I'm going to take this, this document home and sleep with it tonight. But there was a serious downside. Remember, on the Amazon marketplace, anyone could register and start selling. There was hardly any quality control, no seller verification, no product safety tests. This had significant repercussions. A family in Tennessee is suing Amazon. Half a million hoverboards are being recalled after reports that dozens of them have burst into flames. Hoverboard fires like this one at a Houston mall in December sparked a major recall. If you own a hoverboard, stop using it immediately. It looked like chaos, counterfeits, fake products, fake reviews, even house fires. Media outlets around the world started investigating the problems of the marketplace, and Amazon belatedly tried to tame it. We invested hundreds of millions of dollars in innovations to try to fix this at the root, you know? And if you've seen what's happening on these social media platforms, you can't hire thousands of people and play whack-a-mole looking at every single posting <laughs> and try to take them down. That's a process that you'll lose because there are people out there who have great technology and can keep, you know, the, the whatever, whatever bad actor things you're trying to do coming at you faster than you can stop them. Amazon urgently needed to police the marketplace, but the way they would do it would prove to be controversial. Just like they relied on technology to create the global marketplace, they would also develop technology to keep it in check. Algorithms and automation would monitor reviews and probably boot sellers whose products drew complaints about quality or safety. For sellers caught in these shifting sands, this was the stuff of nightmares. That's next. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So the Amazon marketplace was now international, and all over the world, it was making people rich. The biggest Amazon sellers even became public companies. For instance, the electronics maker Anchor is now worth more than $6 billion. But not everyone was so lucky. Here's James Thompson. He used to work at Amazon and now advises Amazon sellers. Consumers just sit back and say, wow, look at all this great selection that's happening, not realizing that there is a whole type of Darwinism happening every day on the site, and some of it is brutal. It's absolutely brutal. It's brutal because the competition among sellers from around the world is fierce. That's why sometimes you can't even find the same item twice on Amazon. Oh, I think I bought that set of, that, that headset 
last week on Amazon. I think I'm going to buy another one for my nephew. Oh, it's not on Amazon anymore. Well, it's not on Amazon because either that brand was taken down or that brand no longer exists and it's been replaced with 10 other brands or somebody went after that brand and filed a bunch of fake reviews and the brand is temporarily suspended while they work out with Amazon how to get reinstated. All this stuff is happening. And as an Amazon customer, you just say, wow, there's 10,000 brands of headsets I can buy. Aren't I lucky as a customer? It is choice, choice, choice. It's wonderful. As a seller, it's a lot scarier. It's scary for sellers because the same technology that makes it easy for them to sign up on the marketplace can also take them down. All it takes is a couple of reviewers saying they think a merchant's products are fake. And the algorithms pick this up, and the next thing you know, the seller is banned. Amazon's automated system has little ability to sort out false allegations from real ones, and the sellers are at its mercy. To better understand this new landscape, we sent our colleague Spencer Soper to one of the largest gatherings of Amazon merchants in the world. We are at the Las Vegas Prosper Show. And what brought you here? Um, I'm a new Amazon seller, and this is our first conference, so we're just trying to get some basic information. Okay. What do you, what do you sell? We sell aftermarket UTV and ATV products. So when you say ATV, like... Like off-roading vehicles, razors and muds, and so what windshields, like? winches, mirrors, bumpers. The Prosper Show is all about Amazon, but it's not sponsored by Amazon in any way. But selling on Amazon can be so confusing and overwhelming, and the rules constantly change. The sellers find it helpful to meet in a big group and network and swap tips. And what kind of uh, problems do Amazon sellers face? I would say poor communication from the Amazon customer support is, can be an issue. You're not really sure if they shut your listing down, what the exact issue is with your listing. An abrupt suspension. Yes. What do you sell on Amazon? Uh, engagement rings and wedding bands. Wow, so people buy those on Amazon? Yes. I had no idea. And uh, so wh what do you sell on Amazon? PB Fit. It's a peanut butter powder. Is that like a protein powder? Yes, kind of. Uh, tell me your name. Okay, my name is Manish Boucher, and I'm uh, a high seven-figure Amazon seller. One of the most interesting people I met at the Prosper Show was Manish. Uh, he's from Phoenix, Arizona, and what stood out to me was that he was ready to talk about numbers that a lot of the other merchants didn't want to talk about. High seven-figure Amazon seller, that sounds very important. And what were you doing before this? I was entirely in a different trade. I was uh, doing uh, scrap metal trading. You know, there was no need of a middleman like me, so I quit that business. Manish buys most of the products from China where they're made. Then he ships them to the U.S. and he sends them to Amazon warehouses all around the country. What's your best-selling product? Um, it's a five-gallon gas can that turned out to be lucrative. It's doing um, $3,000 a day. Wow. What does the gas can cost on Amazon? Or does it... The five-gallon one I sell for 15 bucks. something I get for $2.50. What percentage of each sale would you say uh, goes to Amazon? On Amazon yeah, how much so Amazon I'll get? say I'm making 15, 10 to 15 is what I take home. Is your profit margin. Mm -hmm. okay. That's 10 to 15 percent. So for every $15 gas can Manish sells, he pockets about $1.50, maybe $2. Um... What's the biggest challenge to selling on Amazon? Every now and then, a lot of uh, hackers attack our listing to bring the listing down. 
and the once the listing is down it takes couple of days to bring it up so that itself is damaged at least your sales is not happening for that period of time right so amazon way, sellers get attacked by rivals so in a lot of cases someone who sells a competing product say another gas can will find a way to take down his competitors listings this happens frequently it's part of why these unofficial support systems for sellers exist, like the Prosper Show. James Thompson, the guy who advises sellers, has seen many of the worst-case scenarios. I've seen many people disappear because they were so disgruntled or they made bad initial decisions around how to think about which products to sell, and they ended up with tens of thousands of dollars of unsold inventory that they'll never be able to sell, they didn't, they didn't monitor the competitive landscape properly. And they, they basically said, all my savings that I thought I was going to turn into the next e-commerce business, it's gone. And that's exactly what happened to a guy named Barack Giovanni. Basically, everything that could go wrong for an Amazon seller went wrong for him. Like, my life was so perfect, simple. Like, like I have a job, I have family. I have, like, like very simple life, living in the same place for so many years. And now I'm like waking up in the morning and I don't know what next because I need first of all to finish with Amazon. But till I will get money from Amazon, I have so much debt. I, I, cannot, I cannot apply even to a credit card right now. For 17 years, Barack had a clothing store called New York Speed. He mostly sold trendy streetwear like Hugo Boss, Calvin Klein, and Lucky. He had a physical storefront in L.A. on Melrose Place, and he also sold online on eBay and Amazon. Then, when the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, clothing sales were down. He decided to close his store and go all in on Amazon. Back then, he was telling himself, Amazon is the future. This decision would end up costing him dearly. In March 2020, we packed all the warehouse and we moved it to Amazon. And this was the biggest move that I did in my life because imagine like to take a huge warehouse and just to pack every item individually, underwear, jeans, leather jacket, expensive item. You're talking about like a lot of merchandise. Barack says that all of this merchandise had a retail value of $800,000. Amazon says it was worth a quarter of that. Either way, it basically amounted to his life savings and it was all inside Amazon warehouses. Then one day, he got just about the worst news that an Amazon seller can get. You wake up in the morning and then the employee is calling you and telling you that they close your account. And then of course, your body getting sweat, you're getting sweat all, all, all your body and like, like you get, you freaked out, you go into the office, you're calling Amazon and, and, and you check what they need and you start and you send them everything. Barack says Amazon suspended his account with little explanation. They seized his inventory, and froze the money. It was the equivalent of going to open your store one day and finding chains on the doors. After combing through his own customer reviews, Barack believed that Amazon suspected his products were counterfeit. This is essentially a death sentence for an Amazon seller. Yes, and, and this is like you're ruining somebody's life based on somebody else giving a review now, they don't give you enough information. You need to dig to see what is the last time that somebody bought this item. And then you see you have a jacket that like four people bought or two people. And like you check in if somebody complained, it's hours that, that you need to do your research. They are not telling you all the information like why somebody will complain. 
This is something a lot of people don't realize about Amazon. The company can suspend you based on mere suspicions. Then it's up to the merchant to prove to Amazon that their products are indeed authentic. And Amazon has no obligation to spell out why they're suspending an account. This is when Amazon sellers learn a difficult lesson. Amazon can afford to suspend them indefinitely because there are millions more merchants with millions more products. The disruption for Amazon is negligible, but for the individual seller, the consequences are catastrophic. And then they, they stop communicating with you. And then they're telling you that they will destroy your merchandise. Like, this point, like you already live in a nightmare for a couple months. Now they want to destroy your merchandise. It's like, why to destroy my life saving? Like, like this is not happening to me. The threat to destroy his inventory sounds over the top, right? But it's safe to say that Amazon has been extremely sensitive about accusations of selling counterfeits. Because in April 2020, the U.S. government pointed a finger at the company as a haven for fake products. The next year, Amazon claims that it seized and destroyed 2 million counterfeit products from its warehouses. It's possible that Barack got swept up in this crackdown. He says that he sent multiple requests to get his inventory back, but these requests were ignored. Nothing happened. They destroy all your merchandise. You have nothing to do. I'm on unemployment. I'm, I, I was a businessman with employees, life perfect, working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, happy, the happiest person ever. Now, waiting on Amazon every day, like, I'm, like this is the longest year of my life, and nothing, they're just ignoring us. They're just like, like ghosting us. A spokesperson said Amazon repeatedly asked Barack Giovanni to provide evidence that his items were authentic. Amazon says the invoices he showed them were either illegible or didn't match the records of the brand owners. They said they informed Barack that he'd need to remove his inventory by specific dates or it would be destroyed, and that Barack failed a request to remove his inventory in time. So Barack is now waiting in hopes of getting reimbursed for his inventory. We recorded this podcast in the fall of 2021. He had a binding arbitration case pending against Amazon at the time. In binding arbitration, the outcome is kept confidential, so we may never find out what actually happens. It's hard to say how frequently these things happen. Nightmare Amazon stories abound. Entire cottage industries have sprung up, of consultants and attorneys, who specialize in helping Amazon sellers navigate the suspension process. And of course, the predicaments of sellers came to the attention of the U.S. Congress. Our first witness is Jeff Bezos, the chief executive officer of Amazon.com. This journey started with an order to get a million sellers into the marketplace, to build a system that was self-service, and to globalize fast. The marketplace enriched the company and Jeff Bezos beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Like other tech giants, the Amazon marketplace grew into a huge platform through automation and algorithms. But not having enough human oversight hurt customers and sellers alike. It also turned the company into the policeman of e-commerce, whose job was to instill order on the chaos of its own making. It also brought Amazon into the crosshairs of the U.S. government. Meanwhile, another part of its business would prove just as controversial. Amazon decided they would deliver their own packages. They pushed to expand their vast network of fulfillment centers, 
launching one of the largest armies of warehouse workers and drivers that the world had ever seen. That's coming up in the next chapter of Foundering, the Amazon story. is hosted by me, Brad Stone. Sean Wen is our executive producer. Spencer Soper contributed reporting to this episode. Ray Mondo is our audio engineer. Molly Nugent is our associate producer. Mark Millian, Ann Vandermeer, Robin Agello, and Molly Schutz are our story editors. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, and if you like our show, leave a review. Most importantly, tell your friends. See you next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at cuttereconomicforum.com.